You're listening to the Sexual Wellness Sessions with Kate Moyle. If there's a subject that requires a well-thought-out approach, it's breaking the stigma around sex right from an early age. Luckily, I'm joined by Sarah Sproul in this episode of the Sexual Wellness Sessions, sponsored by the most sought-after and award-winning pleasure brand Lilo. You can use the code KATELILO at lilo.to forward slash Kate to pick a luxurious, sexy toy and to get a free gift with every purchase. Today, our topic of conversation is about how as parents or caregivers, grandparents, whoever we are as a elder to a child, have the conversations that we all dread having, the birds and the bees, as people used to call it. How do we talk to our kids about sex? And I'm so, so excited that I've got Sarah Sproul, who is a mother of three teens, and she has two decades of experience as a therapist and with a master's in sexuality studies. And my favourite thing that Sarah does are her episodes on Instagram, where she does sitting in a car, answering the questions that people send to her basically all around sex, relationships, bodies, puberty, hormones, everything and anything that comes under that remit. And as an occupational therapist and sex educator, Sarah is absolutely the right person to turn to with all of these questions. And I feel like you have taught me so much, Sarah, because as I've told you before, as a parent myself and someone who works in sexuality space, I still feel nervous that I'm not getting it right a lot of the time and I'm often thinking did I say too much did I say too little am I going to get a phone call saying can you come Mm. in your child has repeated this and I think that's a really normal part of the anxiety of all of this Mm. and in fact I think you sum up sort of the edge of where most of the work or most of the support or most of the learning um, is done for us who are raising children in whatever capacity that is, that part of how can we become friends with that worry or that unsureness or that fear of are we doing this right or not? Because Mm. um, it's unusual. We probably didn't have any role models of adults who were um, talking openly in a natural way with a sense of comfort um, about sexuality um, when we were growing up. So um, I just feel like, what you've just said there about the the feelings that come up is an identification of the place where we get to sit as we take on this part of our child rearing. And it's not necessarily easy, but mm. it can be incredibly rewarding. And I think the hard thing about that is we feel uncomfortable and we try to show our children that we're not uncomfortable, but that's where a lot of parents feel that they, or a lot of parents describe to me anyway, they feel like they slip up because their child asks them and they tense up or they have a kind of panicky face or they freeze and then they think, oh God, no, I don't want to do that to my child. I don't want my child to have that response from me. But for so many of us, it's innate because we don't talk about sex normalising in a normalising, relaxed, comfortable fashion. Mm. And then... We feel caught off guard. And I think that's another thing that a lot of people describe is I don't know the answer or I don't know the right way to do this or how do I know the right way to do this? And I I guess that's why I love 
the sitting in a car episodes that you do and your content because for me they really sum up a lot of the anxieties that parents have and I guess the biggest one and I don't know if you'll agree with me or not that I think I see around a lot is this idea that if we initiate the conversation with our children if we start it that in some way talking to our kids about sex is going to sexualize them in some way and Mm. so actually what people do is avoid it and when I say sexualize them in some way I think encourage them to think about sex more or explore sex more it might make them kind of interested in sex earlier than they would have done otherwise Mm. and so as a result what lots of parents do is avoid it or think I'll leave it another year or leave it till they're older and would you say you think that's one of the biggest fears that there is at the crux of this conversation? Absolutely and it comes down to this belief behind all that which is that children don't have a sexual self, which is not the case. Like we've Mm. been led to believe that because of the world in which we grew grew up. But um, children do have a sexual self, a developing sexual self. You know, even in utero, the physical parts of that are are being laid down. And um, I always use an analogy when people talk about this idea of, oh, I I don't want to say too much too soon and get it wrong, using table manners as an analogy, when we are introducing our child to food and how to eat a meal, we sit them at the table, uh, maybe in a high chair or something like that, but but amongst and with an adult or another child who is eating, and we slowly over time teach them particular parts of how you eat a meal. So it might start off with, well, here's some food you put it in your mouth. So it might be spaghetti or a thing of broccoli or whatever it is. And then as they get a little bit older, then we say, well, here's a spoon and this is how you use it. And it's repetition, repetition, repetition. And then they might um, start eating food out of a bowl and maybe then they move to sitting at a seat at the table. And so there's all these layers that we are adding as our child grows because we want them to learn how to eat food in an appropriate way so they have the capacity to go out into the world, um, whether that's to a restaurant or to a friend's house, and be able to socially eat food in a way that people accept them, right? And, and But we can't do that if we wait until they get their first dinner invitation or we're about to take them out for their first afternoon tea at granny's house, for example, because there is so much to do with teaching a child table manners that it has to, by its very nature, be layered on over a period of time and modelled. And talking about our developing sexual selves is even more important to layer on. You know, that when you think about the complexity of it, there's no shame in the world about um, eating food. Well, there is probably a little bit of shame around really poor table manners, but nothing compared to the sort of shame we most of us carry um, about our sexual self. And so it's even more important to start bringing in that culture of we talk about anything here. You're, the parts of you that are sexual are welcome here. I'm going to help you learn who you are and give you the experience of what it feels like to be accepted as you learn that and as you develop that and as you grow into your new and exciting part of yourself related to, you know, creating relationships in the future or your sexual relationship with yourself, whatever that is. And I think 
I can hear it in my voice, my excitement and joy, thinking about that vision of having children that have had that experience layered on over time because that if we can give that gift to our child and if we've been given that gift ourselves, there is something central that becomes positive and joyful around sexuality rather than that feeling of shame or hiding or guilt or fear. And the freedom that comes from that is just beyond belief, Kate, isn't it? It's amazing. And it is so interesting you say freedom because I was thinking as you were speaking there about how it feels like in doing that drip feeding of the information and appropriately aged information for age and stage, and that's something I think we'll get onto, but is this idea of how we're equipping them and then we're equipping them also to adapt. And I had this idea of, I don't know why I had this image of a child kind of sitting on the sofa watching a film eating popcorn and how that's completely different to sitting eating at the table with a knife and fork and then having a snack like on the go and how there's that adaptability so it's kind of like if we build the framework and the foundation it can then be put into different situations where the context will be different or the settings will be different or expectation or preference and actually that can help our young people to to have that flexibility use the word freedom but I think flex I think flexibility and freedom Mm. are kind of interchangeable Mm. here another example of it is um, how our children learn what's appropriate to wear in different parts of their life, right? So we wear a swimsuit when we go to local pool. We wear a pair of jeans and a T-shirt if we go to the cinema, but, you know, we don't get into the pool in our jeans and T-shirt. And I think um, sometimes families will come to me and say, oh, I'm, I'm a little bit worried that if I talk about things related to how babies are made or what sex actually is, that my child is going to talk about it everywhere. And when Mm. our children are small, they may very well do that. But part of raising a child is that we're teaching them there are some things appropriate in some instances and some things that aren't appropriate, whatever that word means, in other instances. And it's not just related to their sexual self, but our appearance, how we eat food, um, the, the volume of our voice, There are so many aspects of living in a communal environment that we learn. I can can yell out loud when I'm on the side of the football pitch, um, but I don't do it when I am sitting in the optometrist's office and they're looking into my eyes. So Mm. um, I think the magic of realising that there is nothing unique about talking about sexual things Every single aspect of it is mirrored in some other part of our parenting. And so I think that brings, again, a freedom or a mm. flexibility, whatever whatever F word you want to use in this instance. <laughs> that's a massive way of thinking about it, isn't it? Because I think the way that as parents we all feel that this conversation is so different to any other conversation that we've had. And I think even if we said to parents, I wonder if even it was not a part of antenatal classes so much, but I don't know, a part of early learning for parents or that that goes with that kind of how to be a parent, I don't know, book, kit. I don't don't Mm. know what the answer is to that. But this idea of saying this conversation isn't that different Mm. is quite a big thing because... I think the pressure to get it right, and also, as you said, the extra factors, what if my child 
goes to nursery or goes to school, repeats it. And then one of the other parents says to me, my child came home and said this, and they said they got it from yours, that we feel shamed. I mean, Mm. one of the words that's going to be a huge part of this conversation. So there's then the anxiety about how it gets passed on or how it gets repeated or what that might reflect on us is another thing so it's not just our child it's what our child then does with that information and I think there is that sense of how do we do this but also a lot of fear a lot of worry and we see it sometimes in um in tv series or on screen don't we there's the kind of think she's cool mum who is dressed by the standards that the film or script considers slightly over the line of appropriate inverted commas back to that word appropriate she's really open about sex and really like talks about sex and then the child is a certain way because of that and the other Mm. parents treat them a certain way because of that so I do think that we see those representations also played up or played out in places as Mm. well and to bring this conversation back again to the same point about there is nothing new in conversations about sexual things in families that aren't mirrored in other aspects of parenting. That same dynamic of being shamed can equally apply to um, if we don't do the home baking on the day that's home baking and we actually have to go to Tesco and buy something. Like, I'm that parent. I have never been a home baker. And there is a sense of like, oh, embarrassment. Yeah, not good enough, mum, whatever it is. And, And so, again, if we can remind ourselves that These challenges are, again, about how we feel, Um, the judgment maybe that we're putting on ourselves or that we are sensitive to for other people. It's not just about sexuality. It's about our broader parenting as well. So Mm. when you think about it like that, no wonder it's hard because we've got normal parent judgment, which is about home baking or does our child do enough sport or does our child play too much screen or whatever it is. And then on top of that, we've got our own and the culture's shame about things related to sexuality and the body and babies and all that stuff. And so you've got like the shame sandwich. Mm. <laughs> it's like, yay, this, these <laughs> topics win because they've got shame from both areas. So <laughs> no wonder it's hard. <laughs> we... um were I was with some of the school mums, some of my like friends who are this in the kind of same school network this weekend and we all laugh at each other when one of us kind of really goes out there and makes more effort and call each other Amanda from Motherland. We're like, oh, you're such an Amanda. <laughs> <laughs> There's always one of us that, you know, gets it right or wrong. But I like I like that we can all joke about it and we mm. all kind of embrace it because there's always one day that one of us has forgot something or we look after each other. And there is a there's because there feels like there's a competitiveness a lot of the time, mm. I think, in parenting. And I saw something, I think it was on Instagram quite recently, which said your child's behavior or performance isn't part of the competition of you being a parent or something. It was something along those lines. And it really mm. made me think how there is this perception of if your child is doing really well that you must be a good parent or if your child isn't that you must be doing something wrong parenting wise and I think that that feeds a lot into these conversations. It's interesting that you bring that up because that was one of the challenges for me stepping into this work so when I decided to turn what was a personal journey for me which was like how do I talk about these things with my own children because um 
I didn't have an experience of having an adult to turn to when I was particularly going through puberty. Um, so when I decided to do this um, quite publicly, there was one main thing that I had to grapple with, which was what happens if um, I'm out in the world talking about how to have a conversation like this and in the course of my child rearing and my parenting, one of my kids does something spectacular that other families would look at and say, oh, I hope my child never does that, right? And it's related to sexuality. So like I'm just picking some out of the, hit, mm -hmm. the air. So for example, maybe, uh, well, the worst one that I could think of would, would be um, one of my kids uh, committing some sort of consensual offence, mm -hmm. right, or an unplanned pregnancy um, or something really like, that we would consider to be a parenting massive fail. Mm -hmm. And um, I had to really grapple with that for a while because it brought up feelings of, well, to be worthy to talk about this, I need to have not perfect children, but children who, you know, avoid those big things. And it got to the point where I, I sort of realised if I held back from speaking out because my kids were human, <laughs> it would be the ultimate in um, hypocrisy in a sense because all of us are humans and raise human children that learn through experience and learn through mistakes, if you want to call them mistakes or failures, you put those all those in quotes because all of us, some of our most powerful learning is through the things that we didn't get right. And um, that absolutely applies to me. In, in my 20s, there were so many parts of my intimate relationships that I did not get right, right? Mm. Or even I just didn't have the skills to be able to advocate for myself. So it comes, it came down for me in this work to having to be really comfortable with the complexity of challenge and raising children who are human and embracing the humanity in myself. And, and I think that's why I will try and tell stories as much as possible of the things that were difficult for me growing up. Like I tell a story about how um, when I was 11, I felt like I was only growing one breast, you know, and um, it was I, the, the horror of that in my mind as I projected forward and thought about, well, what would it be like? to be an adult who only has one breast and, you know, because I'd internalised a lot of, well, mm. you get acceptance from being perfect or looking attractive. Um, there was a lot of fear and worry and I prayed to God, you know, because I was raised by missionary parents, I prayed to God that if I, if I could please just grow two breasts roughly the same size, I would always be good, you know, and um, like stop press. I was not always good and um, I did manage to grow two breasts roughly the same size. But um, it's that human awareness that we all struggle, whether that's through um, my desire to be perfect and to raise perfect children so that I deserve to be able to speak up about topics like this or whether um, it's to do with how we feel about our body and maybe the inadequacy or the, some parts of the shame we feel about our body, which therefore make it feel like we don't have the right to speak up about, you know, 
body image with our kids, it's all deeply connected mm. and um, in a sense juicy because every single little thread that we, um, well, that I have unpicked in my own feelings of wanting to be perfect or um, wanting to avoid shame related to either something in my story or something in my children's either past stories or future stories, every time I unpick a little thread, it allows more openness for me in my work, but actually in our parenting too. And it's wonderful to be able to see how doing tiny little pieces of unpicking work can make even small but wonderful differences in our relationships with our kids. Mm, yeah, I love that. And I think, I guess I wonder if that's one of the things that you feel is a useful I mean, tool, you know, takeaway from this episode or this conversation for people is the imperfectness of these conversations is actually a real gift for our kids as well as for us. Because I think that's also part of it, which is, we don't have to know all the answers. And mm -hmm. I think if our kids come to us and they say, Mama, what does that mean? That we can say, oh, I don't know exactly, but could I come back to you on that? Or mm. why don't we learn about that together? Or could I go and read about it and then I'll let you know this evening? And I think so often there is this anxiety that as parents we're meant to know it all. And when it comes to sex, we might not. And particularly the world of sex has changed and the internet has had a massive, massive effect on that and smartphones and children's access to anything, basically everything. And I think in modelling the imperfectness, we can also say, do you know what? Sex isn't always perfect or relationships aren't always perfect or that we don't always get these things right, but we can try our best or be kind or talk about consent or talk about relationships in a way which models this expectation that things shouldn't always be a certain way. Yes. And then, then if they aren't that certain way, as a result, you feel shame about it because you got it wrong. And I think that underlies quite a lot of this yes. stuff. Yes, because when we model what not knowing looks like, we become more accessible and available to our child who also might not know something. Mm. And um, so it's quite subversive really to model to our child, like to, to counteract that narrative, I suppose, that adults know best and um, we know what to do and you just do what we say, which there's all sorts of problems about that related to consent. But just from the perspective of connection, which is where I come from, so all the work I do puts connection as the centerpiece of what we're trying to do when we talk about sensitive things. So one of the ways to build connection or to nurture connection with a growing child is to be able to be open about things that we don't know or we don't get quite right. With the understanding though that we are learning as we go along and if we don't get something quite right, we can apologize and then do better next time. So we're essentially modeling that mindset of in our family, difficulties and challenges are absolutely okay. Not knowing is okay. And um, I'm here to support you in your not knowing. And, you know, you, you'll see me sometimes in my not knowing. But at the end of the day, I'm here to help you and um, listen to you and answer your questions. And if I don't know the answer, I will find out from someone. 
and come back to you because there we are modeling again that when we don't know something, we will go and find out the answer. We will ask for help. And um, asking for help sometimes um, in parenting can be a, a little bit of a, of a challenge. Like I don't know if the people who are listening to your podcast, Kate, re resonate with this, but I remember when my children were still very small and um, I see, I, you can hear from my accent, I'm, I would grow up in Australia. I've been in Ireland for 20 years. So I don't have my family of origin around me. Those people that um, it would have been easier to ask for help. So when my kids were small, it was really a challenge to reach out to any mum friends and say, I am really struggling or I've got a conflict in my schedule and I can't pick up one of the kids from sport because I should be at piano lesson. Like, could, could you help me out? And mm. not having an ability to ask for help from someone else makes life so much more difficult for us as adults. So how much more complex would it be for someone someone small and I think there's that 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 dynamic of not being able to ask for help is really clear in my I'm only growing one breast story that I felt like okay that I prayed to God but really um, what would have been so much more helpful to me was to be able to go to an adult who um, loved and trusted me because I loved it I loved and trusted and I had adults like that my parents would have been there for me like a shot but I didn't understand that or know that to be true. And so mm. um, I think about 11-year-old Sarah going and saying, I'm afraid. I look at look at something happening on my body and I'm really worried. And that act of asking for help then offers or the other person a chance to, to give me support. And so when we are struggling with something in our parenting related to a question that our child asks, so how did the baby get in there? Or um, um, why do you have hair there and I don't have hair there or whatever it is. Um, that moment when we don't know the answer is a really great opportunity to model to our child that when we don't know something, we ask for help. Mm. And um, we can be showing that to our child over and over again. So in the moment when your child asks a question and we don't know the answer, that is a time of celebration because it's like, yay, I get to model that we ask for help when we don't know. And um, that is a gift that we'll give our child and will help them through the whole of their life. And do you think that curiosity thing is those curious moments are a really good opportunity for us to say to our children, you know, anything you're worried about your body or any questions you have, you can always ask me or... And someone said to me, I can't remember who it was, but someone said to me, when your child asks you a question about sex or relationships or something they've seen, you can always say oh, do you mind me asking why you're asking me that? Or is that because you saw something? And often it's because they've seen a TV advert or read a book or mm -hmm. someone at school said something. And that also is a clue to you to be able to open it up. Or And I think keeping it open is a good thing because when we give closed answers, it can then shut the conversation back down again. But keeping the door open means that our children know they can then come back to us and ask again. Or when you have a conversation with them, you say, and you know, you can ask me about those questions you have about your body anytime or anything like that. You can always ask. I won't always know the answer, but then we can learn together. And 
I think that also takes the pressure off a bit as a parent because it isn't this on the spot, oh my God, I need to get it right and know the answer now, immediately. And as you said, that that modelling for I don't always get it right, something I've started trying to do is if I lose my temper or I'm short-tempered or in a bad mood or get something wrong as I go back to my child afterwards and I say, I'm really sorry that I was cross earlier there was a lot going on or, you know, one was crying and the doorbell was going and the food was burning and or something like that. And I try and say, do you understand that everybody gets a bit cross sometimes or mama has feelings too or that sometimes we can't all be in the best mood always. And think I try and use phrases like that that kind of say you can, you know, have an emotional outburst or blow up or whatever that looks like. And also come back and explain it or apologise for it. And I think that's also helped me a bit with, you know, the frustrations of parenting is feeling at least that I kind of, we call it in couple therapy and relationship therapy, this idea of rupture and repair. And I think I've tried to take that into parenting as well. And, you know, occasionally, obviously, one of my children will say to me, you should say sorry. I'm like, okay, yeah, I should. But yeah. that's... <laughs> that there is something two-way in that that they know that the adults can also say sorry it's not just the children that should always be saying sorry to the adults Mm, absolutely yeah what you're talking about is modeling um the way to have a a healthy relationship with someone that you love and trust and we're giving our child the felt experience, the lived experience of what it is like when someone takes responsibility for their part in it. Mm. And um, it's modeling that sort of thing is so valuable. On the, I'm just thinking there about the two sort of sentences, the way, like, oh yeah, why are you asking me that question? And the, you know, you can ask me anything. When we think about modeling, modeling is more powerful than telling for, mm. you know, in any part of learning, really, what we experience rather than what someone tells us about is more powerful. So the, you know, you can ask me anything phrase is um, one of the common um, advice that a parent would hear in the world of talking about sensitive things. But it's not the most powerful way to help our child really get a sense that they can ask us anything mm-hmm. um, because we're just telling them, you know, you can ask me anything, right? Whereas if we model that we can talk about anything and hear questions about anything, that is where the power of connection builds. So yeah. if we believe or if we want our child to feel like they can ask us anything, then we start conversations about anything, right? Um, so you mentioned Kate, before we started recording about the books that you have in your home related to maybe bodies or emotions or whatever that is, that our environment can trigger understanding that in our house we talk about anything. So say um, I've got one of my favorite books um, for young kids would be, uh, it's called Vaginas and Periods 101. And it's a book that has a pop-up vagina on it, a vulva actually, a pop-up vulva. And um, Even having that book on the coffee table is a sign that in our house, we talk about periods, we talk about vulvas with children of any gender, any sort of body type, right? Mm -hmm. So that is an active physical 
indication that we talk about anything. And that is more powerful than any sentence of, you know, you can ask me anything, right? And I imagine that um, many of us who are now raising children had an adult say to us, you know, you can ask me anything, right? But, you know, did we feel we can ask them anything? Uh, going on my experience, that I didn't know. I didn't. Mm. So it's almost like how can we give our child that emotional sense of yes, anything is welcome here. So one of the ways we do that is through our physical environment. What can we have in our house that shows them that? Um, the second thing would be what conversations can we start about particular topics that indicate that here is a topic you can ask me anything about, pop up vulvas, right, or periods, or um, erections, or um, foreskins, or uh, sperms and eggs, whatever it is. Um, we give permission or encouragement by going first. Mm. And I think that's, it's interesting you say the initiating or the going first bit, because I think that's the thing that most parents, in a way, feel a bit scared of, a bit kind of where we started this conversation. If I initiate this conversation, my child will be interested or learning about sex earlier and therefore it will bring that side of things forward and so it's interesting I think in a way that's where we have this contradiction or this stuckness and I remember listening to a podcast with Marina Fogel who runs the bump class who are a um, prenatal class and the, the podcast is called The Parenthood it's really good and she's saying she was interviewing someone about this topic and they said we frame it as the birds and the bees being one conversation but talking about this stuff is hundreds of conversations constantly. Yeah. Is this being dripped into conversations about everything? And Marina Fogel saying, I talk to my children about sex like I do them brushing their teeth. And we use the same tone of voice and it's just a part of the conversation. It's a part of life. And as a result, it's not really a big deal. And... I remember loving that idea of it being hundreds of conversations. And I know that that is something that is woven into sex education models like the Dutch have, where we see actually that that is reflected in their statistics for unwanted pregnancies being a lot lower and sexually transmitted infection rates being lower. Actually, that typically their young people wait until a later age to have sex for the first time. And a lot of those first sexual experiences take place in the home. Mm -hmm. And that they are talking to children as young as four in the classroom about love, consent, bodies, not sex necessarily in it being about sex, but those early things about sex. So about touch, about love, about relationships and I think that's, you used the word permission earlier, I feel like that's the most permission-giving thing, that from such a young age, it's just there. And so as a result, that instant shame-taboo reaction that so many of us have doesn't come up in relation to the topic being presented. And I went to an amazing talk with an organisation who we both know called Outspoken, who do sex ed for parents and it was called doing it like the dutch and it was all about this idea of how as well sex is just discussed around the dinner table it's kind of like can you pass the gravy so how are you feeling i know you've got your period this week and like it's just it's just a part of the conversation about everything about life about health about feelings and for me that's a model i really like 
I really appreciate so much of it. But equally, how hard is that to implement when we haven't, we've almost had the opposite, when we've almost all been taught in the opposite way? Yeah, and not only have we sort of been taught in the opposite way, or and when we say be taught, what that basically means is we have picked up information just from the way people were around us when we were growing up. So it's not only that, it's also that now as an adult where we're getting to choose, um, we actually have to work at a culture who is preventing, like who is not encouraging us to do that. So mm-hmm. when we're thinking about that fear that we have of if we had this conversation with my child, then they will tell someone at school and then their parent will get annoyed. That is the culture trying to hold us back and keep us in the mold Absolutely. of the way it was. And so one of the things to be really clear about is when we choose to take on this doing parenting in this particular way, it is an act of courage and um, almost a sense of being a pioneer um, or an explorer into a new into a new way. And that if you can imagine in your mind, right, that you you're here with your child behind you and you are choosing to push the culture back from them so that they can learn a new way. And if you imagine what that could look like or feel like physically in your body, you might be holding a shield in one hand and some sort of like, I'm imagining a spear. I'm thinking Amazonian right now, right? That me as the Amazonian parent or mother, um, I have my child behind me and I am forging their path and blood, sweat and tears are pouring off me. And I know without a doubt that this is so important because my child is behind me skipping along and I am running interference for them. I, um, I have a story, I think one of my, my kids was nine or 10 and we at that stage um, in our relationship with my partner, we were using condoms as our contraceptive method of choice. And so we had condoms in our bedside lockers and various parts of the house all the time that our kids were growing up. So by the time um, this child was nine or 10, it was part of our thing. You know, you're talking about doing it like the Dutch. Uh, on our shopping list, we had broccoli, toothpaste, condoms, you know. And, and so when the kids were helping us do the shopping, that would be part of the thing. Anyway, so this particular day coming home from school and um, one of their little friends were walking with us home and we live in an urban part of Dublin and there was a used condom on the footpath, which is of course gross. But anyway, (laughs) my child sees this and goes, ah, yuck. And their friend goes, what's yuck? And my child goes, ah, there's a used condom on the footpath. And their friend goes, "Uh, what's a condom? And my child goes, oh, a condom is what you use to stop the sperm getting to the egg. And, um, and the friend goes, oh, all right, all right. And then which I was patting myself on the back going, oh, excellent parenting <laughs> moment there. Good job, Sarah. Well, the following day, the parent of that child came over quite irate to say, your child told my child what a condom was and I did not want to have them to have that conversation with your kid. I wanted to have that conversation in a few years' time. And this was a moment of Amazonian courage for me as a parent, right, that I had to listen and sit with the challenge of someone else being really upset and they were really, really upset. And so it's this really interesting experience of knowing that what I was doing for my family was right Mm. and having this 
massive pushback. And that story actually has a happy ending because two years later, I got a phone call from that parent and um, they were saying, you know, they have a younger child and they were saying, uh, you know, I realized I need to talk to him much earlier than I did with my first kid. So do you have any book recommendations? And (laughs) and we had that conversation. So it's like in that moment where we are doing that Amazonian warrior stance Mm. and pushing back to allow our child the freedom to grow and change into someone, something that, you know, they can be because it's shame free. We are also modeling to the community around us a different way and our community may not see that as a positive thing in the beginning and most likely that will be if their their first child is the same age as our first child but what we are doing is actively showing that there is another way to do this and most of the time what happens in my work anyway is um, families will come to me when they have an older child who is going into puberty and they're starting to realize oh no I wish I'd been talking about this earlier. And so they come to me and then we start looking at, well, what can they put in place for their younger children? And then how do they catch up for their older child? And, um, yeah, it's it's an opportunity of growth and and learning. And what I love about that story that you just told is this is one of the things about it. We can't control when this stuff is going to come up. We can't control when we're going to step over a used condom on the pavement or Mm. um, someone at school talks about tampons or a sex scene comes on a series or our child walks into the room as they're talking about something and we have a podcast on or whatever it is we can't you know and you know the internet and smartphones obviously being one of the biggest um, surprise or out of control factors Mm. for us as a part of that but it's that waiting for an opportunity for it to happen means that it's probably going to happen when we least expect it or, as you said, you know, stepping over a condom on the pavement. Mm. And that, I think, is a part of this because this stuff is going to come up and it is around us. And, you know, one of the things I talk about a lot is this idea, this kind of funny idea, we're in a funny place where sexual wellness and sex positivity, I suppose, as a movement is really moving forward and we are having a lot of these conversations and a lot of the work is happening, but it clashes with the history and the taboo and the idea, the default really that we shouldn't be talking about this stuff or this stuff should still be private or shouldn't st- be public. And I think we're definitely not there. You know, I'd say shame is one of the most commonly attached feelings to sex still. So I guess for me, And I think shame is probably where, like, it's a good place for us to kind of move towards ending the conversation because it's such a big part of it. For me, I think the thing I'm trying to achieve most as a parent, and not just in relation to sex, but in relation to bodies or appearance or feelings or emotion, is how do we try and minimise shaming and shame being an internalised feeling because the reality is a lot of what we're talking about here you know we can have the practicalities but it's the feeling that the conversations induce which is the thing we carry with us and so something I say and I would love to know if you think this is a good idea or a bad idea is that there are certain parts of our body that we can touch in private and certain bits we can touch in public 
and it's fine for us to touch everything um but some bits aren't okay to do in a public space and a bit like you're saying about outfits and for me I feel like that's non-shaming because it's not you can only touch these bits and you can you know play with your feet but don't put your hands anywhere near your genitals those are no-go areas and also what I want to do is be able to encourage my children that if they have a problem or that a part of their body doesn't feel right or it hurts that they shouldn't say because it's associated with that part of their body and I think that's something that I've seen in psychosexual therapy quite a few times is that people have as younger people or children or teenagers had conditions like thrush or urine infections and they haven't felt able to tell an adult because it's to do with the part of their body that is a no-go or has never been discussed or is kind of any time a conversation about it comes up it gets shut down immediately so they've internalized the feeling that that's not okay Mm. and then they have a difficulty with that part of their body and they don't speak up so the condition gets worse or conditions things like phimosis where the foreskin is too tight so if a boy or man gets an erection it hurts Mm. and then they don't know what to do about that and so there then becomes an anxiety built up or something like someone's been on antibiotics and so their risk of getting thrush is higher or lots of people get thrush in reaction to having antibiotics but there's no knowledge of that and so you feel a level of discomfort and that physical discomfort comes paired with emotional discomfort yes and I think that I've kind of gone off on a, on a, gone a different path but I started it by that body parts private public thing because also we had ingrained into history messages like if you masturbate you'll go blind yes and we know that some of the highest densities of nerve endings are in the genitals and that children don't know necessarily that what they're doing is sexual but it just feels nice they Mm. touch themselves on their body all over and it doesn't they learn that it's not an okay thing to do rather than it's naturally it's kind of like a learned behavior that they know what to do or not and I guess as parents you know that learned behavior we we play a huge part in yes I love the sort of the way that you structured that sentence which was um our bodies feel wonderful to touch and touching them all over feels great and some parts of our body we do in private I love that and I think the additional part that we can bring to that too to really counteract feelings of worry and shame that our child might pick up if not from us then from people outside is to I sort of um, talk about it in my work as like this face that we put on when we talk about magic it's like it's wide-eyed interested excited and you won't be able to see that if you when you're listening to the podcast but I've got my eyes wide and I'm sort of smiling as I'm thinking about something magical so if we thought about other magical things like an acrobat flying through the air or the fact that in spring beautiful pink blossoms come like you get that face right when you think about something magical and joyful so when we're talking about this idea that Um, certain body parts feel really amazing to touch actually and there are spaces in our house that is the best place to do that we can put on this magical face because the reality of it is genitals or any other amazing feelings on our body that's magical that is a gift that we have for the whole of our life whatever those sensations are that our child is discovering so we put on our magical face and we go It's so exciting to find the parts of our body that feel the best to touch, isn't it? And um, that's one of the jobs of being a human and being a kid that we find those magical places. And um, the the place to do that 
is somewhere where like you feel safe, um, like your your bedroom or your bathroom or whatever whatever the the rules are in your house. But we're bringing this element of joy to it. Um, and when you bring the element of joy and the, the magic face, as I call it, um, not only are the words saying um, this is an anti-shame activity, but your body language is doing that same thing. And that sort of tip we're using the magic face, you can practice the magic face in your, in your mirror if you feel weird about doing it. Because all the things we've talked about, Kate, you know, um, all the, the statements and the the need to do this when our children are very, very young and to do it early and often, like that layering technique I taught it, said earlier. There's no shame in needing to practice this before we get to do it with our child. So practicing the magic face, you could do that with a friend. You say, I need, I need to practice my magic face. So let's talk about something, you know, or you could do it in front of the mirror. Um, you, sometimes we need to practice saying particular words, which we can say, like one of the prescriptions could be saying the word penis 10 times before you brush your teeth, morning and night, mm -hmm. or what, whatever it is. So as we're mm. slowly sort of um, giving our nervous system a chance to get used yeah. to a word that when we were growing up was probably uh, paired with an adult's face who looked shocked or disgusted or whatever. So what we're needing to do is send signals to our nervous system that actually... It's okay. It's okay, yeah. and um, and you can do that. Some people are able to do it on their own. Sometimes you need someone, a friend or a therapist or a sex educator or someone whose nervous system loves talking about penises and vulvas and tampons and all that, who can teach your nervous system that, uh, yeah, no, these, these words are good. In fact, they're fun. In fact, they're magic. And then you can pass that magic on to your kids too. Mm, I love that. I definitely think I have the magic face. I mean, probably too much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> whenever I just love my job um and I think mm. one thing I wanted to ask you which I imagine the the age range of parents children who are listening not the parent not the children who are listening to this the parents who are listening to this I imagine there might be quite a, a wide age range of children is if a parent suspects that their child is already starting to have some kind of sexual contact or sexual experiences or is starting to show interest in that side of things and a parent feels that they haven't had those conversations with their child, it's never too late, right? And would you have any advice for parents who think that their child might be already starting to have sexual experiences? And when I say child, I mean more young person. Yeah, I guess, I guess I'd like to have that as a part of the conversation because I know that a big worry as you said is people's children get to a certain age and then they think we should start mm -hmm. a conversation I wish I'd had it earlier yeah is how can we help people with with that stage yeah. of things this is a wonderful chance to practice taking responsibility so um let's be honest if we had been able to talk about this earlier because we knew it was important for our child we would have done that but we didn't know so here we are um, but we are the adult in this relationship, so we take responsibility. And that can sound like this. Um, I need to apologize to you for something, right? So that's how you start a conversation, taking it on, completely our responsibility. And um, you can add something like, like warn our child because I'm imagining that this conversation might start around 
you might be in a situation where you need to have this conversation around 13, 14, which might sound horrifically early to some people, but um, certainly when kids start secondary school, there can often be the culture of, have you had your first kiss? What's the dealio? Come on, come on, come on, sort of thing. So um, I need to apologize to you for something. And um, this conversation might be a bit embarrassing because when we use the word embarrassing or when awkward or whatever that word is, we're flagging a sensation that they might feel in their body that we might feel in our body too. So um, you might know, you already know, Kate, that when we name emotions that we perceive to be negative, when we name them, there's this magic thing that happens is they reduce they reduce in their in their feelings inside our body. So if we name that for ourselves, we name it for our young person, then we say, um, yeah, I'm, I need to apologize to you. This conversation is going to be a bit awkward probably or embarrassing. There's something, a, a part of being human, that I could have been talking to you about since you were four or two or whatever it is, and I didn't know. And... Um, and now you're 13 and I realize I've made a mistake. See, we're modeling. All these things we've talked about already, we're modeling in this one conversation. I've made a mistake and now um, I'm going to need your help. Because one of the major things with um, young people at that age is they're not at the stage where they would have been able to just happily listen to us now. There's a developmental uh, physical sensation they get when they hear an adult talking about things related to sexuality which is almost like a revulsion it's like a, a like they need to push us away I call it mm. the squick factor right so they will they will already have that in their body and so um, we're saying to them we need I need your help because um, you need particular information um, I need I need to know that you have this information and at the same time you need to know that I'm not going to talk about things or say things to you that cause you to feel embarrassment or worry or anxiety. So you're creating this culture of collaboration. Mm, and that's um, exactly the word I was thinking about. Yeah. Yeah, because um and and that's the culture that we enter into when we're parenting older children who are growing towards adulthood, essentially, this collaborative culture. Um, and so then it becomes a matter of sitting down and explaining what we know our child needs. So that is non-negotiable. We know you need information about this. You're going to need to help me or advise me or instruct me about what are the ways that you can, um, I, I know you can get this information in a way that feels comfortable for you, yeah. right? So we are we are standing in a non-negotiable you need this information, the collaboration comes with our child about how they get it. Because some children will say, it's okay, I know everything, it's fine, you don't need to talk. That's not that's not going to be okay because that doesn't meet our need. Our need as a parent is to know that our child has all the information and has heard us um, talk about these things so they know they can come to us with mm. questions. And helping our children to make informed choices. Yes. Yeah, I guess that's a phrase I feel like I use in therapy a lot, this idea of helping my clients to make informed choices, and I think it fits perfectly here as well. Yes, and, um, and I guess that's the thing about what we're, ne what we're negotiating in this conversation is that um, absolute rock-solid knowing that our child has information and skills to be able to make informed choices, to use, mm. to use your words, right? And if they just say it's okay, I know everything. We don't have that rock-solid sense of knowing. And, I mean, because they're too young. They don't know. 
what they don't know. Mm. And, um, and so when, when you enter into that culture of collaboration and you stand your ground, and that's, that's about, this is a boundary setting thing in parenting, we stand our ground, know this, this needs to happen and um, we need to negotiate together how it's going to happen, um, then we can move forward. And I'm not saying it's easy you know, but that's what parenting's about. Do you remember? Oh, I definitely remember bringing home a newborn. Was that easy? Whew, it was <laughs> not easy, right? So <laughs> as parents, we have done very difficult things already in our parenting. And this is another thing. And when you think about it, maybe this is easier than bringing home a newborn because I don't know about anyone else, but that was completely like Carnage. soul destroying for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolute so carnage. <laughs> Yeah, And I guess to close this off, what resources do you think are out there that are really helpful for parents? Because I think that's the other thing is where do we go mm-hmm. as parents who want to know more or are trying to know more or trying to learn more and we feel we can get good information? Yeah. Um, obviously, your page is... something I'd like to point to outspoken sex ed for parents Mm -hmm. is an organization I would really like to flag I think that they have some great resources and they have a really good newsletter as well Mm. where they send um I think it's monthly articles out that have been in the press about bodies and sex and things like that um so I I think they're a great resource but anything you'd like to throw in yeah I'd like to add that when we think about resources it's not just about sort of buying a book. Well, it can be about that too, buying a book and leaving it on the shelf. I think the power in resources comes from on these resources in an ongoing way, showing up every week in our inbox or every two weeks, whatever it is. Um, I agree with the outspoken newsletter. It's great. And it, it's, it's a place where you can go to find out all the things that can help you um, increase your understanding about what's out there to help you mm. chat, right? Um my sitting in a car, it's a podcast, it's also an Instagram video series. Every week a new question comes out. And so when you're looking at a resource that comes out every week, Kate, your podcast will be an example of this where it's retraining your nervous system to hear these words and talk about these things is useful. I love amaze.org. They have a YouTube channel which are little, very short, about three-minute Um, comic videos about specific things and they're sorted into age categories all sorts of things all sorts of things you whatever you're looking for you can go and find something there and you can watch those with your kids at the same time so I think keep in mind that just like we layer on conversations uh, with our child as they're growing up so that they have the skills and the information to make informed decisions um resources we need to layer on for ourselves too so um, you might buy so like for example um, sex is a funny word is a book by Corey Silverberg which I love and they have also written I think it's making a baby anyway go on to Corey Silverberg and find uh, the books they've written because all those books are useful to have in your house so if you buy some books for your home you start listening regularly to a weekly podcast you subscribe to an email newsletter like Outspoken, then what you're doing is layering on resources for yourself. So you're not alone. There's going to be these constant reminders that this is an important thing to do and um, you don't need to do it by yourself. Amazing. It's, it's almost building a mini culture 
of comfort with sex in your home, isn't it? I guess is the way. And I, you know, what I think is also really important to say is you don't have to be an expert and you don't have to be really sex positive and really out there and really enthusiastic about everything because I think the comfort thing is, you know, it's like if I'm working with people with sexual pain conditions, for example, we talk about going from painful to uncomfortable to comfortable to pleasure. We talk about going up this scale. No one is expecting every single parent to end up at the kind of highest end of the scale where this stuff is not remotely uncomfortable or not remotely challenging. And I think that even just increasing your comfort is is enough to shift something um that that's also okay you don't have to become a sex expert or love having these conversations about sex or be trying to lead the PTA and <laughs> to have the conversations it's okay just to do it in your own way yeah. and I think that is a big part of it I always say to my clients in a first session I have these conversations every day I'm not expecting you to feel as comfortable as I do or use the same language that I do and you do it your way and I will work with you and that I think is a good a good thing for as a reminder for parents because again the whole point of this conversation is to not put pressure on to get it right get it perfect know exactly what you're doing but almost the opposite yes I I think about how there are other aspects in our parenting where we're not experts and we get on with it so Um, Only a few parents will be nutritionists, for example, yet we have all managed to wean our children onto solids in in some shape or form. They're getting food. That's a good thing, right? Some of us are not uh, personal trainers, yet we are making decisions and um, helping our child with their, you know, healthy levels of physical activity in the same way um, that we don't have to be a professional to do those things. we just do our best and we continue to learn. Um, those same things can happen um, with our conversations about the sexual parts of being human, our sexual selves. And if you can manage the other parts of parenting without being an expert or having a degree in it, then it is possible to give yourself permission. The first step is to give yourself permission to do this to the best of your ability. And maybe the best of your ability looks like practicing the word vulva every time you stop at a red light. Or maybe it's saying to your child, uh, do you know what? I've realized that there was a wor- there's a word about our body that um, when I was young, I was taught not to say, or I was told it was a bad word. Do you want to hear the bad word? Like, and it's like, Ooh, what child does not want to hear a bad word? Like, and then you can say penis or vulva or whatever it is and make it a bit of a, a game. Like, um, so there is always going to be ways to be creative. And if you can't come up with creative ways, that is exactly right as well. Where you are is exactly right. And it's simply a matter of finding a resource that is going to give you that one tiny little step to make progress. And any progress that you make is going to be such a gift to your child and um, you'll be doing something very wonderful for them. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Sexual Wellness Sessions. If you'd like to join us for more conversations, you can click subscribe on either Apple or Spotify podcasts. And if you have a moment, please leave us a review.